Welcome to So Curious, a podcast presented by the Franklin Institute. Hey, I'm the Bull Bay. And I'm Kirsten Michelle Sills, and we are your hosts. Yep. And this whole season is the science of music. And today we're looking at the relationship between music, language, and communication. First, we're going to be sitting down with Dr. Ani Patel to learn about the surprising links between music and language in the brain. And then we'll be joined by Philly rapper A-Rob to talk about the concept of flow within rap and his experience rapping as someone who knows multiple languages. So, Bay, what is your experience as a hip-hop artist? Like, what's the connection with you with language? I mean, words, I think, are just as musical as an instrument because a word makes a sound and sometimes a word can sound sharp round bouncy all those different things and Mm. and so i really enjoy the art of bending a word recently i've gotten into french pop i don't speak french but there is bounce and cadences and and pockets that French is able to get into that you can't do with English. How does language play or the rhythm of language play in the humor when you're doing comedy? Yeah, big time. I mean, I would say like the biggest resource for a comic is thesaurus.com. You should be always looking for a jazzier, better synonym for the word you're about to say because so much comedy comes from the word you choose to say. I mean, I think John Mulaney does this incredibly where he picks these very kind of theatrical, sometimes old-timey words. And the comedy not only comes from what he's saying, but the extra comedy comes from the word he chose to say. Right. Instead of saying sad, he says, you know, desolate or something. And like that, right. And then that makes something not only funny because the joke's funny, but then we're all like, what a weird thing to say. So... Here to give us the brain science perspective is Dr. Patel. Welcome to the So Curious podcast. Thank you for coming on with us. How are you? Good. How are you? Oh, great, great. Really happy to be speaking with you. Can you quickly introduce yourself and let the world know what it is you do? Sure. I'm Ani Patel. I'm a professor of psychology at Tufts University, where I study music in the brain. And I have to say, I'm a Franklin Institute fan. I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. been there many times, many field trips. Um, And (laughs) so I'm basically a biologist by training. My undergraduate and my graduate degrees are in biology, but I just love music. And starting at the end of college, I got fascinated by the idea of trying to apply the tools of science and biology to the study of music and the mind. And so that's kind of what I've been doing since then. Now, are you a musician yourself? And if you are, can you give us can a little... Can we hear some? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. I wish. Now, I have to hook you up with my children who are actually genuine musicians. I love to play and sing, but I don't have any official training in music. What is your instrument of choice? And also, what are your kids' instruments of choice? I play guitar, and then my son is a drummer, and my daughter is a singer. My wife actually plays bass, so we could actually start a band at some point. You have the whole team. (laughs) That's great. So you've done a ton of research into the link between music and language cognition in the brain. So tell us, how are music and language similar? Yeah, well, what I love about studying that relationship is that they're so obviously different in so many ways. You know, it's like you can do fundamentally different things with them. Like if I said, you know, here's a saxophone, try and order a pizza. You know, good (laughs) luck, right? You're just not going to get very far. 
right? On the other hand, if I said, try and express some of the most profound emotions in human life in the next two minutes in words, it's tough, you know, but take a song and it can absolutely transform your sense of time and space and emotion and take you places that language alone cannot. Victor Hugo, you know, who wrote Les Mis and uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, he said, music expresses that which cannot be put into words and that which cannot remain silent, which I think is just such a wonderful way of saying the power of music is different from the power of language. So they're very obviously different in many ways, but what intrigues me is the hidden connections, how we can use science to discover those connections and how we can leverage them sometimes to help people with language disorders. You just mentioned uh, language disorders. What do you mean specifically by that? Yeah, so one really good example of this kind of obvious difference, and yet it's perhaps some hidden connection, is this long-known phenomenon of people who have strokes and have trouble with language. So aphasia, problems producing language after stroke. And this is devastating for humans because we depend on language. And they haven't lost their intelligence. Sometimes they can actually understand quite a lot. But when they go to try to put together a sentence, they just can't get the words together. It's not a problem with their mouth or their motor control. It's really an underlying cognitive language problem. Well, it's been known for a very long time that some of these people can still sing very fluently and sometimes can sing songs like you wouldn't even know anything was wrong with them. And you might think, okay, yet another example of how language and music are fundamentally different. Except it turns out that if you take people like that, and this was discovered back in Boston in the 1980s at the Boston VA Hospital, and you use music-like utterances to help them have fluency, you can actually retrain some of their speech abilities through a program called Melodic Intonation Therapy. And what that seems to do when you look at the brain is it seems to take circuits in the brain that were more specialized for singing and retrain them for speech. And so it's not like your brain is completely fixed in the way it represents language and music. If they're close enough in what they do, those circuits can sometimes take over functions from the other domains. For somebody who can't communicate, getting some words back and getting some fluency back through a singing kind of therapy or melodic therapy can be really meaningful. And especially because there's no pill you can take to cure aphasia. There's no Mm. surgery you can get to cure aphasia. So what are you going to do? So at the moment, that's a really interesting therapy that's being researched more and more to understand how it works in the brain and how we can optimize it to help people get some language back after brain damage. Do we have any answers to some of these questions? Are we still kind of like exploring and and, and finding new concepts? We're starting to get some answers, yeah, through modern neuroscience. Uh, A colleague who's done a lot of work on melodic intonation therapy, Dr. Gottfried Schlag, he's a neurologist at the Harvard Medical School, and um, he has done brain imaging with patients undergoing this therapy and seen kinds of changes that are happening in their brains, see how these circuits are changing to support language. And it's really exciting because, you know, we're combining these kinds of therapies with brain science to understand the mechanisms. This is a kind of a new area. In fact, just in the last five or six years, the National Institutes of Health, the biggest you know, funder of biomedical research in our country from the government, is investing now in research on music in the brain more than it ever has because they think these therapeutic benefits can be real and they want to understand the mechanisms in order to better make these available and optimize for people. Dr. Patel, would, would wow. you say that the brain understands music and language differently or the exact yeah. same way? Well, I mean, what's interesting is there's definitely got to be some overlap. So the question is, at what point do they diverge? I mean, Mm -hmm. so at some trivial level, right, we have the same set of ears for speech and music. It's not like you sprout a different set of ears to do music, (laughs) you know. So we know that you have to have some level of processing that's shared, basic sound processing, right? So that's not controversial. But you get higher up in the brain, and we know, on the other hand, there's some specialization. Like I said at the beginning, language can use words in ways that instrumental music can't, right? 
But the point is that in between those complete overlap at the very early levels and very different things at the very high levels, there's significant amounts of intertwining. And that's what we're trying to discover using cognitive science and brain science. So there's no single question like, are they the same or are they different? Yeah. One thing I love that we've been learning is like how innately human music is and like how built into us, how it's just like part of the DNA and the atoms in what it is to like be a living thing. Yeah. It seems like music and creativity is a part of the core human experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we know it's one of the things that's in every human culture, you know, no matter how remote you go in the world and how unconnected people are from the rest of the world, they always have music and they always have speech. And there's always music in early childhood education. What are your thoughts on, you know, music being kind of like a tool for kids to learn language, you know, in those early years of life? I think it can be very powerful um, because they're often also very intertwined early in life. You know, kids go back and forth between singing and speaking a lot. You think about the way adults speak to children. We use kind of a musical style of speech almost, the sing-song way you talk to babies and infants. Mm. That's been shown to be important in their language development. Good morning! Oh, it's so bright outside. I know you're so sleepy. I know you're still sleepy. But we have to wake up now. We have to go. And these hidden connections at this early age are super fascinating. So one of the things some of my colleagues and I are very interested in is research to suggest that there's connections between non-linguistic rhythmic processing. So, you know, ability to tap to a beat or clap along with a beat or clap back a rhythm. And your ability to segment sounds, uh, words into their individual sounds as a child, which is One of the big problems in dyslexia is breaking words into their individual sounds and understanding that words come apart and you can recombine sounds. And in the mind, somehow these two things, rhythm and this basic, what's called phonological processing, seem to be connected in in children. And that is exciting because children who struggle with those kinds of language problems will end up often with reading problems because those language abilities are fundamental to reading. But if rhythm is related to those abilities and you can then use rhythm to either help diagnose early risk for dyslexia or even treat it by having rhythmic-based exercises that are just fun and games for the kids, but are actually training brain circuits that are going to be important for reading. That's super exciting. There are a lot of people really interested in that right now. And what about adults trying to learn a new language? How how does uh, having a musical background maybe give you an advantage to learning a new language? Great question. That's a hot topic right now because there's intuition that having a musical ear or musical background could help you pick up another language. But the problem is, it seems to be, we need to break that down into sub-problems. Like, There's some evidence and growing evidence that having some musical aptitude or musical training can help you pick up, say, the the sounds of a foreign language and the accents of that language and sound more like a native speaker, but maybe not so much the vocabulary, right, or the grammar. Um, So we've got to break down language into some different parts and see which parts music can help with. But people who teach foreign languages and want their students to speak like native speakers, they're finding that drawing students' attention to the rhythm of language and to the melody of speech sometimes through music-based exercises can really help students learn. Well, let me ask this. I think you're in a really unique position, not only because of your academic background, but as you said, you're a parent. What have Mm. you noticed of watching your kids pick up music? Is there any particular discoveries you've made in terms of watching their brain develop and watching them kind of (laughs) acquire skills? Yeah, I promised myself I wouldn't experiment on my own children. (laughs) 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 Um, But... There was some interesting observational stuff. So when they were little, when they were really small, you know, like a year to two years, 
we started playing them these lullabies from around the world because there were this this label Putumayo that puts out these lullabies from around the world. And they loved them and they did not understand the word. Neither could I. I mean, these were all in all these different languages, right? And I still remember I, I played them all these lullabies in different languages for a year before I put on an English lullaby, one that they could actually understand. They were like, what? You can understand music? <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's, not, it's not just gibberish. But they both now have a deep love of learning other languages, and they're very good at picking up the sounds of other languages. Go to sleep, little baby. When you wake, get some cake and ride them for little horses. Something about packaging music and diverse languages early in life in their development in a way that was appealing to them and soothing to them and, and reinforcing in a kind of a not stressful way. It wasn't like a lesson. It was just falling asleep to this wonderful music from around the world. I think maybe open their ears to both the musicality and, and the sounds of many languages because they have both developed a taste for it and really are good at it. So does the language that someone speaks affect the music that they would write, like given that there's so much rhythm and contour in different languages? Does that kind yeah. of stuff show up in instrumental pieces? Yeah, wonderful question. Um, this is an old intuition that, yes, something about a composer's native language gets imprinted on their music, even their purely instrumental music. You know, something about Debussy's music just reminds people of the French language is something, you know, musicologists wrote you know, back in the 50s. Elgar, who wrote, you know, Pomp and Circumstance, the graduation music they play at every high school. Mm -hmm. That's Elgar. And um, so something about his music, linguists wrote, just somehow resembles British speech, even though it's obviously not speech, it's symphonic music. So this is a really provocative and intriguing idea, because when I first read about it, I like okay, this sounds crazy at some level, but at another level, these people are spend their life listening to music and they're very sensitive ears and they must be picking up on something. So one of my favorite projects was actually tackling this question using scientific tools to measure rhythm and melody in speech. And of England and France is where I started because a lot of these people were writing about people like Debussy and Elgar and then comparing it to the instrumental written music of these composers and using the same measurements of speech and music and then we showed that there actually was something to this idea that you could show using science that Debussy's music really does reflect the French language, uh, the speech, the sounds, the rhythms and melodies of the French language, and Elgar's music really does reflect the rhythms and melodies of British speech. And we went on to look at other composers in other countries. Yeah, this was really a neat discovery, and it kind of combined mathematical measurements of melody and rhythm in language and music with music history in a way that was really fun. So what does the future of language music cognition look like? What new discoveries are happening? Yeah, what are you excited about? Uh, I'm super excited about these potential practical implications of these early connections we're seeing between music and language processing in childhood, like the rhythm stuff I mentioned in relation to speech sound processing. And I'm not the only one. There's a growing number of people excited about this because of the potential practical implications it has for helping kids with language disorders early on when their brains are still more malleable and you can training can have a big effect. So if your listeners are interested in this, there's a great resource that UCSF has put together called the Sound Health Network. And it's trying to be a kind of a clearinghouse for all the kinds of projects that are looking at music and health and the way music can impact language development in children or 
language uh, recovery in adults with stroke or how music can help people with Parkinson's disease to walk more mm. fluidly as they often do when there's music on, you know, both basic research and applied research. And this is something that's grown up as a collaboration between the National Institutes of Health, the Kennedy Center, and the National Endowment for the Arts. They've partnered to kind of make this information more accessible to fund this kind of research. Just the last few years have been a turning point for those of us that have been in the field of music and the brain for a while to see this kind of interest and excitement about the practical implications of this work. The other one that's coming up that we'll see more and more of is this early use of rhythm with children to both to help predict which children will end up with having reading problems and then to treat through rhythmic-based therapies these children and to help them get on a better path with the underlying mechanisms that are going to be important for reading before they start to actually have struggle. I mean, that's kind of a dream, but it's exciting. Yeah. Absolutely. We should absolutely work wow. towards preventative measures instead of mm. just reactive measures. And and I, I love the fact that there are uh, people putting forth some effort in that direction. Well, Dr. Ani Patel, thank you so much for being here. This was a real pleasure. Thank you for talking to us today. Absolutely. We had a lot of fun. This was fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thanks. Bye now. Thanks again, Dr. Patel, for taking time to speak with us. I thought it was interesting what he said about how, like, this can help treat dyslexia. It outlines how much is happening in a split second. You know, Mm. um, deciphering code, timing, rhythm, cognitive function. And I'm oftentimes walking away from these conversations, like, amazed. I'm just, like, mind blown. It validates the fact that I need to take two naps a day because (laughs) uh, there's a lot going on up there just as humans. Um, So switching gears a little bit, we are now joined in studio by local rapper A-Rob. Welcome. Super excited to have this conversation. Really good friend of mine. I won't get into all the backstory, but can you introduce yourself and tell us what it is you do? Yeah, my name is Amin Rahman, but my stage name is A-Rob, A.R-O-B. That stands for Always Remember Our Blessings. I'm a Palestinian-American rapper, hip-hop artist, and audio engineer here based in Philly, originally from Harrisburg, PA. All right, A-Rob, can we hear a snippet of your music? Absolutely, I got you. Just confirmation that I'm a win. The beat getting beat up, I'm violent. I'm smooth like I'm seeing on the violin. I try, if I fail, I'm a try again. No denying it. Hey, Rob, how did you get into rapping? What's the origin story? Really, like, middle school, banging on lunch tables. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Everybody in my area, like, in my middle school and high school, like, wanted to rap. We would do exactly that, go to lunch, make beats on the tables, and, like, battle each other, see who could be most clever. And everybody listened to hip hop. It was like all rap and R&B for me growing up. We wanted to try to be clever like Lil Wayne or see what cool similes and metaphors we could come up with. Or, you know, battle rap was big, too. We wanted to battle everyone. So we just tried it. And I was pretty good at it since a young age. Like I was good at poetry in like elementary school. And it kind of just translated into rap. Did you know anyone growing up in your real life that was a professional musician? Like, when did you come to realize, like, oh, this is what I'm going to actually make my life? I didn't really know anybody who was doing it on, like, a major scale of any sort. I was always told that I have a relative in Puerto Rico that's a famous singer, but (laughs) never met him. So I don't know. I just once I realized I was good and I believed that it was good enough and I wanted people to hear it and I thought people should hear it. I was like, I'm really going to take this seriously. 
The focus of this episode is going to be language and music, and you are a Palestinian hip-hop artist. Tell us about your identity and how you identify. I don't like to be looked at solely as a Palestinian rapper, but I am a rapper who is Palestinian, and I do really take pride in talking about my culture and incorporating it into my music any way that I can. The Arabic language finds its way into your music? Yes, yes, it does. I'm like not 100% fluent, but I'm conversational in Arabic. So, you know, I'll incorporate Arabic words just randomly here and there. If you're ever listening to one of my songs and you're like, I don't know that word, (laughs) it's probably an Arabic word. And can you talk about the rhythm and cadence that I guess English presents versus the, the rhythm and cadence that Arabic presents? Yeah, there's some similarities for sure. I mean, there's like ancient Arabic kind of like rap circles. They would kind of gather and like almost do rap battles in Arabic, like way back in the day. It can be similar in those ways, like lyrically, but instrumentally, it's different. Arabic drums are always different. Arabic string instruments, like the oud, is sort of like a guitar, but it's played totally differently and there's different scales. It's similar and different in a lot of ways. I was just going to say, how do you find your footing in those differences? Because you you go back and forth pretty seamlessly. I've heard you go. And then collaborating, too, must be interesting. Because, like, if you're collaborating with people who aren't familiar with these sounds, with this language, and trying to find ways to, like, make them all work together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I try to make it seamless. I try to incorporate the sounds and the instruments into my music. And like we said already, the words go back and forth and just it could be like a new age hip-hop instrumental with like some tabla drum in it which is like a uh, middle eastern drum that you like hold on your lap and play with your hands fire so i i don't know i just i kind of try to intertwine everything that's dope that's dope and what's your mindset as an artist are you like conscious of the mixing and blending that you're doing or mm. I made a conscious decision, especially more recently, like the last few years, I really made a conscious decision to like proudly talk about my culture and heritage and talk about Palestine in my music, really just give my people a voice because there's not really many Palestinian artists in America, at least, that have that kind of voice. And when they do, they kind of keep it tucked under the rug and they don't want to ruffle any feathers. But um I've made the conscious decision to talk about it and make it clear and apparent to anyone listening to my music, you know, just give my people a voice. So, Bay and I love when we get to interview each other, so I'm going to ask you both this question, because, um, I mean, you know, we're doing this science of music. Bay is a musician. I'm a professional stand-up comic. I am not a musician. So, both of you, please, can you explain flow? Like to listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with the hip hop genre, what is flow? For me, I think flow is finding the vocal rhythmic pattern that sits well with the soundscape. Is that true for you? That's definitely true. I mean, I kind of think of it as like a river or a stream flowing, right? If the instrumentation is like the earth or the ground, then the lyrics and the rhythmic patterns and the words that you're using have to flow through it in a way that's appealing and fits with the structure. It's just literally like a flow of water. It can also be like synonymous just with rap in general. Like Mm. you can be like, oh, he flows, Mm -hmm. meaning he raps. Or they're over there flowing. You already know that means they're over there rapping. Yeah, and so is flow something that you feel like you always had even when writing poetry, even when it was there was no music behind it? 
Yeah, I guess it might be natural. It might be like God-given. You might just be born with flow. I'm I'm not (laughs) sure. You can definitely hone it and work on it and practice it like anything. But yeah, I feel like I've had it for as long as I can remember. I mean, how did you find the rhythm in in words? When did you first realize like, oh, these are five syllables and I can break this apart Mm -hmm. and rhyme it with these two syllables and so on and so forth. How did you stumble upon that for yourself? I think listening to just some of my favorite artists, like going back to Eminem and how he does that, he'll just break down syllables and he'll have 10 syllables that rhyme with the next 10 syllables. And you're like, okay, that's intricate. And then, like, you know, or like one of my favorites growing up was Lupe Fiasco. And he would have a lot of those, you know, real intricate rhyme schemes. And I was like, okay, let me try that. And it just kind of came to me and I was like, all right, I can do this. This is fun. I can rhyme multiple syllables together and yeah it just panned out yeah and i think also having that part of your brain from the beginning of appreciating it and noticing it because there's plenty of people who are not necessarily musical people who can enjoy listening to music without being able to say like oh that was like craftsmanship eminem Mm -hmm. making 10 syllables rhyme with the next 10 syllables whatever and i imagine like all artists that's got to ignite something in you where you're like oh damn i want to do that yeah, yeah yeah well i i know a lot of people that listen to a song and they'll they'll just hear the beat like i have friends that need to listen to a song 10 times before they memorize one line i'm like you play me the song one time mm. i can basically recite it back to you i i go straight for the words right that I'm might just way. be a natural thing you are you the same I'm one a, i'm a big word person yeah like obviously as a writer in comedy like i can watch a show and i can remember it verbatim what are you hearing and what are you listening for is it pattern is it speech is it phrasing is it timing is it like what, it's what phrasing you... for sure i because i teach stand-up comedy classes so now that i teach people how to write jokes and the formulas and all that behind it You know, once you're in the industry and you start breaking it down, all of a sudden you're like, oh, that was genius. Like, that was exactly what I was trying to explain to the class. I'm going to save that and show it to them. So maybe it is just like an appreciation, at least for me. I mean, yeah, what is it for you? What are you listening for? Yeah, The rhyme schemes, definitely the rhyme schemes at first. And if there's like the multi-syllable patterns, that's really like impressive to me. And and then just clever wordplay. Similes and metaphors are huge in rap. And when somebody has something really clever, I'm like, oh, how did you relate like rap to the whole universe in such a clever way? And I'm like, okay, that was that. And was that fire. sounds it's so funny because that <laughs> that sounds like a, a reward system, right? That the brain is kind of like picking up on when you talked about, I guess, the reveal or the punchline of like, oh, they said this prior and it matches in this particular pattern, the prestige of it, I guess. So your writing process, are you... Words first, beat first, combination of both. I'm beat first. How beat about first. you? It's a mess for me. Um, <laughs> it's it's wherever I'm at. Like sometimes I have started with just lyrics. I don't have any musical instruments at home. It's just me. And again, it's kind of unpredictable. I need to kind of, I can start from a place of like no music, just writing lyrics, and then I'll stop. And I'm like, oh, I need music to kind of push this further a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And that's when I reach out to collaborators or whoever else and we'll find some sounds and then we'll take it from there. Sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes I do start with a beat. So yeah, it's it's kind of all over the place for me. I like the way words sound. Mm-hmm. And I definitely want to throw this question at you because you know different languages and I feel like you can hear different things and mm-hmm. it affects how you listen. Mm-hmm. That's really big for me. I don't know if that's the same for you. And I don't, I don't know if understanding Arabic phrases changes how you listen. 
and what you can hear and how you can pattern match? Yeah. I mean, it, it changes how I write for sure. I feel like I have a cheat code because if I'm like, nothing rhymes in English, like something mm. might rhyme in Arabic though. <laughs> like, Good hack. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hack. I'm like, I have nothing that rhymes with this in English. So let's try something else. But that's pretty cool that you just go acapella a lot of the time. I need to reach out to producers first and I just listen. I listen to like a hundred beats before anything catches my ear. And then once it catches my ear, I'm like, okay, I really like this. And it just starts coming in, like just starts flowing. Ideas start populating. And I'm like, I was just going to say flow. Like when you, yeah. when you kind of find yourself in that moment of inspiration, it's like, okay, this is matching with that. And this is matching mm -hmm. with that. And you kind of hit a, a particular working rhythm mm -hmm. and you're working this creativity it's a special thing to, I think, for, for any of us to kind of create and ponder and, and kind of come up with something. With music, I think it's really interesting, Bay, what you said about, you said, I like the way words sound. Yeah. And also in other languages, famously, different languages have different musicality to them. Some languages are like very glottal, like in the back of your throat. Some languages are very forward. We talked about like accents yesterday about how Australian is like, hello how are you? It's all yeah, like yeah, in yeah. the that was very naughty. Yeah, it's all in the back and very like smiley. Like yeah. different words, they literally make different sounds and the sounds kind of create different feelings. Mm -hmm. And that's know? such a musician thing to yeah, say. Yeah, we're super like, emotional. <laughs> I'm super emotional. So I'm like, oh, how does this feel? But let me ask you about freestyling, right? Like how yes. does your mind find the words in real time when you're rapping? Yeah, I mean, freestyling, like, you know, a lot of people will call it a freestyle nowadays when it's not, when it's really just a free verse that was memorized. Mm -hmm. But like true coming up with it on the spot freestyling is like, I, I enjoy it. A lot of rappers are like, don't ask me to do that. Like, they don't want to embarrass Because it's vulnerable, themselves. right? It is. It's stripped it's down. Improv. It's the most stripped down, like, form of rap. We can sit here and think and come up with the most clever thing if you give us enough time. But when it's mm -hmm. like, just do it in a moment. It yeah. will be something that's a little bit more just like straightforward, generally speaking. Yeah, yeah, but I just need a word. Like it could be something I'm looking at or it could be something that like if we take like Franklin Institute, mm -hmm. I'll just take those lines and like Franklin Institute, I spit the truth. It's fire. I lit the booth. I got to sit with bull, you know, something <laughs> like that. And know? that's patterns, right? To me, that's what I kind of keep coming back to pattern matching. Like that is a pattern that you kind of follow until maybe you switch the flow right and, right. and then try a different cadence mm -hmm. yeah we always like to leave our our listeners with some kind of insight from the pros in the industry we're talking about so like what is some advice that you might have for people like you were you know years ago ninth grade people who are looking to get started in rapping make sure you love it make mm. sure you really love it because just like anything i guess you know if you really want to do something and you're just doing it because you think it's cool or you think you might be successful at it, that's not going to lead you as far as it would if you actually care about it and love it and because you're going to need to put in a lot of time and really just study the music that you like, study the musicians that you love and don't really try to emulate them, maybe at first as a practice, but learn from the greats and then kind of forget everything you knew and, <laughs> and then you'll be your own self. Find your own voice too, which might take a long time, but you know, just don't try to be like anybody else and practice freestyle, write a lot. Mm -hmm. Even if it's, uh, I can't tell you how many verses I've written that are in the trash and they will never be. I have a shoebox, probably a few shoeboxes full of verses that I wrote in high school and college, like on paper that are 
never going to be used anywhere. But it's all good practice. So I would, I would just say love it, write a lot, freestyle a lot, and study the music that you love. Hell yeah. Well said. Oh, that's perfect. Wow. I feel very inspired. I know I do not have an upcoming rap career, but... <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You never, you never know, know, right? <laughs> you never know. Thank and real you. quick, do you want to plug any oh, of your Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Socials? At A-Rob's Music everywhere. A-R-O-B-S Music. That's all social media and like Spotify, Apple, all that is A.R-O-B. Hope you check out the music. Thank you guys so much for having me. Hell yeah. It's been a lot of fun. Thank awesome. you. Thank you so much, A-Rob, for coming on the show. We're going to need to hear a full version of that Franklin Institute freestyle sometime because I feel like there's a collab coming. Franklin Institute freestyle. Stay five times fast. Franklin Institute freestyle. <laughs> but yeah, for it. All right. And be sure to join us next week when we look at all the connections between music and memory. Why do songs make us remember the past so well? How do songs get stuck in our head? And how is music used to make us remember things without us even realizing it? When you need to be able to remember the letters of the alphabet in order, that's when it can be particularly helpful to use music because that chains them together in the proper order. We have all that and we have so much more. So speaking of memory, I would like you all to remember. Do remember. Do remember to listen and subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. It goes such a long way for a podcast like ours so we can get this awesome, awesome info out to people. Thank you so much. Tune in next Tuesday and go birds. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet, Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson, the Franklin Institute's Director of Digital Editorial is Joy Montefusco. Dr. Jayatri Das is the Franklin Institute's Chief Bioscientist. And Aaron Armstrong runs marketing, communications, and digital media. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our mixing engineer is Justin Berger. And our audio editor is Lauren DeLuca. Our graphic designer is Emma Seeger. And I'm the Bull Bay. And I'm Kirsten Michelle Sells. Thanks. Thank you. See ya.